Hey, Allison, welcome to the Rising Executive Podcast. Uh, this is a podcast where we interview the top leaders in tech and startups. So welcome. Thanks so much for having me. And for those listening, uh, Allison is a partner and head of marketing at Bain Capital Ventures. And she has a really interesting background, so I'm excited to be digging it, uh, digging into it with her today. Uh, so Allison, there are a few things I wanted to ask you about. Um, yeah. And the first thing is your transition from operating to going into the VC world. And I think a lot of people listening are startup leaders that are looking to make that transition at some point. You know, some want to be in the C-suite, but a lot of them are looking to maybe transition and work at a big VC firm or even a smaller VC firm. So what advice would you give to, you know, a VP of product or a VP of marketing that's looking to make that transition into an investing role or a non-investing role at a venture firm? Yeah, I mean, at BCV, we talk a lot about domain expertise. And so sometimes what that means is, you know, on the venture and investing side, having expertise in the areas that you invest in. But on the platform team, which I'm a part of, you also need to be a domain expert, whether that's in talent and recruiting or in um, sales and go to market or in my case, in marketing and communications. And so that startup experience is actually really essential to the role. It's really difficult to advise a startup on how to grow and market yourself and um, and your messaging and positioning if you haven't done the work yourself on the startup side. And I think that distinction is important. Like it's great to have worked for big companies. Maybe you've gotten to see, um, you know, how that works and all of the different facets to what a big marketing team looks like. But that startup experience, I think, is also essential because you know how to work with less resources. You um, you know how to be nimble. You know how to experiment. You know how to work directly with CEOs. And and so I think, um, you know, for folks who want to make that transition, really honing your craft and becoming a domain expert on the startup side in your individual function is, is a key component. And then I also think a lot about networking. And so chances are there are VCs on your board of directors if you're at a startup. Get to know those folks a little bit. Um, if you can, if you get to present in the board meeting, you know, develop some of those relationships, um, develop some of those relationships with VC firms outside of the folks who sit on your board, um, you know, insofar as you can. And I think eventually those relationships lead to potentially freelance opportunities in some cases that may blossom into a full time operating partner type of role at a firm. And on the networking side, how did you generally approach it when you were a leader at a startup? Did you set aside some week? some time every week to connect with people in the VC world. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no worries. (laughs) I have this deep voice today. I sound like James Earl Jones and it's because uh, I have a little bit of a cold, but um, so back to the question, networking, how do you, how to approach it? Uh, Yeah, no, no worries at all. Don't worry. That happens to me all the time. Uh, (laughs) uh, Yeah. I was just asking about your approach to networking when you were, you know, head of marketing at a startup um, or, you know, you were in an operating role. Did you generally set time aside every week to connect with people in the VC world? Did it more happen organically? What was your kind of approach and strategy to that side of uh, your advice? To make it a real priority. I mean, truly with anything you want to do, um, if you don't carve out time for it, it's, it's not going to happen. And I'm sort of a religious um, scheduling maniac where like I'll schedule in deep work. I'll schedule in networking time. I'll schedule everything in because otherwise it gets booked over and you just never end up doing it. And so, I mean, even during COVID, I used to do this thing called lunch club 
fairly often once a week or so. I'd set a time, set aside an hour on Fridays and I do a randomly AI matched call with um, someone in my industry or beyond and, and find a way to develop a connection. Those connections, even if it's not obviously apparent in the moment, uh, develop into so many interesting things. I've ended up placing some of those people at companies that I advise. I've ended up um, meeting peers at other firms and learning from them. Uh, I just think networking is such a priority. And, you know, you have to consider before you try to network with someone, what did they get from the interaction also? I I find sometimes people reach out to me to network and it's very clear what's in it for them. It's not always immediately apparent, you know, what's in it for me. And so in, in, in making an ask to say, Network with a startup founder earlier in my life cycle uh, as as a as a um, executive, it, you know, it's tempting to reach out and say, "Hey, can I pick your brain for twenty minutes?" It's like, you know, that twenty minutes is valuable. I found it much more useful to reach out and say, "Hey, I noticed this about your website and your messaging, and um, I want to talk more about it. I'm not sure that's right. I might approach it like this, or really, I think it's really interesting what you're doing on X. Have you thought about why? Provide some actionable, clear insight in your initial uh, email to the folks, and you're just much more likely to get a yes on meeting with you. Um, and my boss Noah at BCV has a really interesting take on this, and his is always be talking to people who are two or three years ahead of you where you are in your career. They're just much more likely to want to learn from you also uh, as sort of you're approaching things with a beginner's mind, but they also have a ton to teach. So so I think that group is also uh, really one of the best places to do your networking. Yeah, and that's a great point. You know, always leading with value. I, I think that gets overlooked in the networking context. Honestly, it's not that different than than sales or even marketing, right? It's like you got to provide value to the other person in some fashion, right? Like, and I think uh, I think you're 100 right. Like, just saying, "Hey, do you want to connect?" is not as good as you know. Here are the things I noticed about your website, or uh, here's how I can be of value in some way uh, to just get people interested, right? Yeah, here's an example of how how I helped somebody else who's a peer of yours. You know, I'd love to do the same with you way more likely to get a response than, hey, can I pick your brain? I mean, I think VCs in particular probably get 60 of those messages a month and can realistically do five. How do do you land among the five? For sure. And I wanted to ask you a little bit more about sort of your recruiting and interview process from moving to, I know you moved from an operating role to a previous VC firm and then you moved to BCV, but could you, for those listening that don't know anything about sort of an onboarding or recruiting process for a VC firm, can you talk a little bit about how that kind of worked? Um, you know, if you're asking in terms of how, uh, what it's like when you first join a VC firm or how to interview to get that job. Yeah. So the, how the interview process looks like, right? So for BCV, in terms of when they were uh, trying to recruit you and you went, uh, joined, what did that interview process look like? And how is that different from an interview process to be a VP or a startup leader at a, it's on an operating role? different, I think. Yeah. Um, you know, the only challenge is at a, at a, you know, startup, you have one CEO typically, who ultimately makes the final decision on most senior hires. Of course, there's a hiring committee. There's going to be lots of people who weigh in, but like that person makes the final decision at a VC firm. And and this manifests itself in a lot of really great ways, but also in some challenging ways. You're going to have a lot of different partners, many of whom are sort of of equal status. And it's it's a decision by committee in a different way than it is at a And so it can be, that can manifest itself in a longer interview process where you're meeting with tons and tons of partners. I mean, typically it's done in a smart way. You meet with one person, if they, who's typically the person who's managing that hiring process, if they are into you, you meet with a whole slew of people, often, you know, in my case, like 15. Um, and then 
you get moved on to like an exercise phase typically where you're presenting your thoughts on the firm itself, brand and marketing, you know, from an outsider's perspective, or you're presenting a case study on past work that you've done, uh, some sort of exercise that then allows the firm to see what it would be like to work with you in a full-time capacity. And obviously that's helped a ton if they've had prior interaction with you. Um, so, you know, I, I think a lot of my peers who ended up being hired at venture firms um, worked in a consulting capacity for that firm for some period of time first. So they already know then what it's like to work with you. The exercise you do is often designed to sort of mimic that and give a sense of, of what that would be like. And then you present that exercise, you take questions. Typically, they make sure those questions are hard so that they see what it would be like to work with you if they challenge you. And um, that's your opportunity to really shine. So, you know, I think on the startup side, you may be asked to do an exercise. You may be, you may meet a ton of people, but there's one sort of arbiter of, of the final decision. At a VC firm, a lot of people have to agree that you're the right person. So it can take a little longer and require more meeting time. Got it. That makes sense. And kind of going back to the networking angle for a second, when you see people make that jump into VC firms from startups, is it, do they generally know someone at that VC firm from a pre-existing relationship? Or is it also possible to make that jump through like a, a cold application or, you know, kind of a, a cold approach to the VC firm? I, anything's possible. And there's a zillion trillion VC firms out there right now, many of whom want marketing talent in some way, shape or form. So I can't speak to the exact numbers. When I talk mm. to my peers at other venture firms, many of them had a pre-existing relationship with a partner there who brought them in. In other cases, they're brought in by, you know, a headhunter or, you know, a talent person. So those are other great people to network with and make sure you know the um, the talent partner at a lot of different firms. Uh, you know, Rich Talent Group ended up um, approaching me about the opportunity at BCV. They're fantastic to work with. I've always had great experiences working with them in the past. And, um, you know, that that's kind of how this one came to fruition. But I had a personal friend of a friend with a partner at Playground for example, who introduced me to some partners at Playground and got them comfortable with me. And, and so I think, um, again, in both cases, it comes back to networking. I, I never say never. You absolutely can get a VC job by applying. But it's 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 just, I feel, less likely than if you have had prior to exposure to those folks or come recommended through kind of a warm intro. Got it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I wanted to also ask you about the skill set side of it. So I know for you, your domain is marketing. But how much of an overlap is there between doing marketing at a startup versus doing it at a VC firm? Is, did you have to kind of start your learning curve over again in some form or fashion, or is it pretty much the same skill set? A lot of it's the same. So my job is um, every VC firm approaches marketing differently. Some marketing partners exclusively work on the portfolio. Other marketing partners exclusively work on the, phone, uh, on the firm brand. I'm really lucky. I get to work on both. It's sort of a dream job. Um, I have all of the... Uh, focus of being able to work on the firm's brand and all of the excitement and the new and the wonderful energy of startup founders that I find so um, feeds me when I get to work with people who are building their dream kind of from an early stage. So I, I kind of get to do both, which is great. I find on the startup side, my past experience is incredibly relevant. What I, I've, I've built startup marketing teams before. I've helped startups you know, build their messaging, positioning, and their branding from scratch. And so I find that is almost a direct translation. The main difference is approaching it as an advisor who does some of the work rather than someone who's going to be able to do all of the work for them. Because realistically, with hundreds of portfolio companies, if you try to do it all for everyone, it, it just it just the math isn't mathing. 
So uh, that was the big sort of mental transition with what, what am I going to offer? What's my product offering to our startups? I'm always going to roll up my sleeves and help with your funding announcement. Um, and particularly for our early stage founders, I'm going to offer some variety of media training and messaging. But, you know, if you've just raised a series C, your needs for me are much more advisory. And, and so that was the main change there. On the VC firm side, there are some diff- there are a lot of similarities, but there are some differences. And so a lot of it was learning some of the terminology in, in the VC world. What is IRR? What is you know wh- what are all of the sort of words that that venture capitalists use? And and how do I how do I think about uh, what those mean? And then I think it, it also at the same time um, it, it is sort of a a different business in terms of it's a, it, as I said before, there's a big layer of partners. And instead of just supporting when you're at a startup, a company's brand and their CEO, you're figuring out how to support all of these different people. And how does that play into the master brand? Because really what is a venture capital firm, but a collection of really smart people. And so it's a lot more thought leadership work. It's um, it, it, it's each and each partner is distinct in the way that they want to approach that and the way that they should approach that. Uh, so I think there are there are a lot of similarities, but more differences uh, on the firm side than on the portfolio side, which draws very directly on, on prior experience. Got it. That makes a lot of sense. So th- there's probably more of a learning curve on the VC side yeah. of learning those terms. But in terms of advising, it's very similar to the work, obviously, that you've done before as, as a startup leader, right? Very similar. It's just the temptation to want to do it for them. If you're If you're a great operator, you want to operate. And so there's always a part of me that wants to like do it for them, but I have to, um, I, I have to try to strike that right balance between hands-on work and advisory work. Yeah. And before I, so I do want to ask you more about sort of your operating career and kind of dig into that bit, because a lot of the themes we talk about on the podcast are around leadership and management. And I, I do want to kind of dig into that a bit, but before I do, I wanted to ask about sort of the first part or sorry, the second part of your answer around a BCV. Um, and when you think about marketing and brand for BCV, can you describe a little bit about how, BCV is different than other venture firms and what what type of brand you're, you're trying to continue to build on for BCV? Yeah, BCV is really special. This is a firm that's been around for a while, consistently delivered great returns for its investors, and is part of this larger PE uh, conglomerate, Bain Capital. And so we have all of the wonderful resources at our disposal of Bain Capital, whether that's customer introductions, you know, deep pockets, the ability to stick with a company even after it goes public. Um, so we can we can be with you when you're a couple of folks in a garage with an idea all the way through and past, you know, IPO. Um, the firm itself specifically, specifically has incredible domain expertise. I mean, one of our partners, Enrique Salem, who invests in infrastructure, used to be the CEO of publicly traded Semantic for a decade. So you really can't get better domain expertise than that. And, and that's just one example among many at our firm. Um, so that's another piece that I think is really important. And lastly, one thing that's a big change, I think, for BCV is in the last year, we've grown from, I think, three to 19 people on our platform team, myself included. And so we want to be an active, hands-on, helpful investor in tangible, material ways. Our talent team, I think, is eight people at this point. And so if you're hiring an engineering executives, we're going to be materially helpful in helping you do that as a startup. And so that's another key capability, I think, that um, differentiates us. Got it. And so just to change gears a little bit. Um, so on the operating side, 
you know, I know you've uh, looked, moved up the sort of marketing ladder at various organizations. And so there's sort of two parts of, you know, kind of moving up the career path, which we talk a lot about on the podcast, which is one developing your domain expertise, which you clearly have as a marketing leader. But there's also the side of your career where you've had to learn how to be a great manager and a great leader. Um, you know, there's the marketing side and then there's the management side. So I want to ask you a little bit about sort of management and leadership side of your experience at startups. Uh, what were the main things you did to develop as a leader and manager outside of sort of your domain expertise or outside of the sort of marketing specific expertise? I'm kind of a weird person. Like, uh, it's interesting you, you ask. I, I've taken improv classes. In my career, I was on an improv comedy team in New York briefly. And um, that that's like a weird outside interest that I find helps me tremendously at work. Because oftentimes in my capacity, I'm put on the spot. Uh, I have a reporter ask me a question I'm, I haven't researched. I have uh, an executive who wants immediate answers on something and and I'm not sure the, the improbability um, allows you to see that as an opportunity and not a threat. It's, oh, I get I get to improvise here. What a treat rather than, oh, no, I, my stomach is fluttering. I'm, I'm terrified. And so I, I found that really helpful. I love to read novels. I love to read about mythology and sort of, uh, you know, the idea of what is a what is a compelling story. Stories are so ingrained in us as humans we we experience life as a narrative and so often i find startup executives want to present their their company as a collection of facts rather than anything that resembles narrative structure and that sort of force feeds people your story rather than presenting it to them um we we don't experience the world as a collection of facts we experience it with a narrative arc and so I think a startup has to approach their messaging in that way. So that's another thing I found outside of work that's been additive to my job. I actually took some creative writing classes for a while at the new school in New York as well. And just really thinking more deeply about storytelling, um, I, I think, is another additive thing that I've done outside of work. And then just being a part of networking groups with my peers. I'm a member of this group of um, you know, 25, 30, maybe, I think more at this point, uh, CMOs of venture firms. And some of these folks have been doing this work for 20 plus years, um, real pioneers doing marketing. For I just learned a ton from interacting with those people. And um, I hope they get some value out of talking to me. But regardless, um, simply going to an, a quarterly event with those women and men um, is very inspiring. Yeah, that's really interesting. And on the on the management side, were there specific things that you did throughout your career as a manager to you know just stay on top of your game on that side of it? Yeah, in terms of managing people and managing talent. Managing, yeah, people and your and the teams yeah. that you managed in the past. Yeah, I mean, I think um, you have to go into managing people with a little bit of a philosophy. And it helps to have had managers that you liked before and managers that you didn't like. And think about what what did you like about working for that person versus this person? And what aspects of them do you want to emulate versus which aspects do you want to throw away? And so, you know, in my career, I think I've been lucky enough to have some really great managers and some not so great ones. And, and you, you sort of learn from that what kind of a manager you want to be. And, you know, I'm a real hands-off manager. I want people to um, feel ownership and over their particular domains on my team. Everyone on my team in venture is head of more or less their, their department. And there's a reason for that. They own, they own that. I'm here as a resource, a sounding board. I can provide direction and the plan and and all of that. But if I'm all up in your business helping you do your work, I'm not enjoying it and you're not enjoying it. Um, So that's one big piece. And I think having a sense of humor is another one. I mean, there's a saying in communications that I really love. 
that's it's PR, not the ER. And I think that's true of all marketing. If we, if everything is make or break, you lose the creativity and the spark that's part of the profession because you're you're terrified of being wrong. I think um, you know, creating an environment where people can make a mistake, can be a little bit wrong, can can learn from it is really essential to to building the marketing leaders of tomorrow. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, you mentioned a, a couple interesting things that I might want to go back to actually. On the so you mentioned improv, you mentioned storytelling, and then on the management side, you mentioned like just creating a culture of safety. Um, yeah. I really want to actually touch on the storytelling side because that's something that has not come up on the podcast before. But what advice would you give to, to startup leaders that are looking to become better storytellers, like on a more tactical level? Do you recommend them to take a course? How, how what are some of the ways that they can develop their storytelling abilities? I have a lot of thoughts on this. So take your take your pitch deck. Your pitch deck is your is the main artifact of your story. So basically, that pitch deck, your marketing team is going to take chunks of that and pitch it out. Um, and, and so think and ask yourself: Is this a narrative? collection of facts. I mean, I really go back to that. Present it to someone who doesn't know anything, knows nothing about your business or your industry and see how they feel. Like, you know, not your mom, because your mom is in, uh, is a party who wants to see you succeed, but someone like that, a neighbor, a friend who doesn't work in your business and see what they take away from it. Because I think we all assume that people are listening to us very actively. We all assume that everything we say is being received in reality, people are only receiving a small part of what we say. And when it's not interesting and when it's not part of a story, they're tuning us out. And so it's interesting to get an outside perspective from someone who's a disinterested party to see what did they retain from your deck. It might be quite different than what you thought uh, you were communicating. And so I find that's a step one is those disinterested third party practice pitches. So so that's, that's sort of step one. Um, you know, I, I think another tool or tactic that I've seen that really helps with storytelling is put less information up on the screen and, and more in the voiceover. You know, if people can read ahead of everything that you say, it, you're not really telling a story. You're, um, you're, you're narrating slides, you're sharing a collection of facts. Uh, and, and so again, like um, I used to work for a CEO who's a big believer and his slides were only an image. And maybe seven words. He had like the billboard approach to slides. Incredibly compelling storyteller for that reason. And, um, you know, I, I think not everyone can pull that style off, but the closer you get to that, the better. And then have a different deck that you leave behind for your for your VCs that has all of the information written on it. But the presentation deck should be attention grabbing, should hold people's attention. You're just much more likely to get people interested, whether that's a VC, a reporter, a, a, a new hire, if you're telling um, a story that's interesting and compelling, rather than relying on them to work so hard to retain the information that you're sharing. Yeah, and I find that especially executives that are very analytical tend to have a little bit of difficulty with storytelling, right? Because it's it's all about like memos and like writing everything out, but then you kind of lose that creative aspect like you're mentioning, right? So I think that's great advice is maybe rely more on images and other creative elements, which, so you don't overly rely on like sort of written, written material, right? Totally. And I mean, I find to your point, one of the things I feel like I teach a lot with startup founders, particularly those from academia or technical backgrounds, is there's a temptation to lead with the facts and then get to your conclusion later. And um, that makes sense, right? That's how you would present your thesis in academia. You better lay out for me how you got to this conclusion. It's very different with media and I think with humans in general. 
who lead with the headline. And then if I have a collection of facts under it that I can share if it feels like my point is not landing or needs further proof. But always start with the point so that people lean in. If you start with the facts, people are here and then they're waiting for you to get to your conclusion. Start with the conclusion, even if it feels outlandish to you. And what about, so that makes a lot of sense to me. And actually that's very tactical. So I really like that piece of advice, but in terms of building up the story, right? So do you recommend getting to the point originally? Like, you know, if you're presenting a business case, like kind of start with the, with the point and then kind of present the facts, or do you recommend kind of building up to the point? It seems like you're saying the first, but I just wanted to clarify because I think it's a really important point. Start with the point. And the more sort of counterintuitive or counterfactual or, or audacious or broad that initial point is, the more opportunity you have under that to tell a great story. So, you know, what's the umbrella theme of your business? And then what is the what are what are the facts you have to support that? And, and I think any great company has that narrative. And sometimes founders get too focused on telling a product story and they forget to tell that umbrella story. Here's what my thing does. Here's who it's for. Here's how much money we're going to make. And here's here's the team. Why? Why have you decided to build this product? If you succeed in 10 years, what will you have built? Um, what's sort of the movement that underpins what you're building? Um, so so that, that's, that's advice I give a lot. Yeah. And I also want to hit on the improv point. I think that's really interesting. So I've taken an improv class as well. So have I, you? yeah. Where did I, you- I, I actually took it in college. Uh, so I took oh. a creative improv class and I, and I completely agree with you. I think it's such an underrated skill set um, and approach. I, I like the framework of improv, which is, you know, no matter what happens, just stay calm and kind of go with it, say yes to everything. And just, you know, I think that framing is really good. Uh, but for people that haven't taken a class before, uh, what advice would you give them to kind of stay calm no matter what happens and, and take that sort of improv oriented approach? Yeah, I mean, preparedness is key. And, yeah. you know, it's, it's funny, like improv isn't really just sort of shooting from the hip. Um, yeah. That's dangerous. Like a prepared mind who know that knows improv skills is, is the dream. And so some of this, you know, I go back to a more tactical example, but I think this is true everywhere. In preparing for an interview with a journalist, we'll often go through what do we want to communicate? And then what are the questions that we're likely to get asked? And some of the exercise is figuring out how to take the question that you're going to be asked and bridge over to the question that you want to answer. And, and I think that's part of the, the improv skill. If, you, if you've done that exercise, if you've done that preparation, any question you get asked is a gift. It's um, who are your competitors? You don't want to list out at company X, Y, and Z. That's, that's answering the question directly. A question about your competitors is really a question about differentiation. And so use that as an opportunity to say, you know, when I think about this space and there are a number of players in it, the factors that really matter are price selection and convenience. And here's how we're tackling those. Um, and then you've, you've, you've effectively transitioned away from the place you don't like and into the place you do like through preparation and nimbleness. And I think the nimbleness piece is what improv really draws on. Yeah. And those are two great frameworks, improv, storytelling for, I think, startup leaders to add to their toolbox. Um, and then I wanted to hit on this sort of last question, which was going back to your answer on management, which you said that your your management approach is relatively hands-off. Um, but what we found is just through my discussion with startup leaders is that some of the best performers tend to be have the most trouble with having a hands-off, hands-off approach, right? Because they have the highest standards. So have you dealt with that challenge in your career? And how have you kind of dealt with it, that? Oh my God, I deal with it still. Sometimes I want to go in and I, I think I'm a decent writer. 
And so that in particular is an area where I sometimes want to go in and rewrite everything. And then I have to remind myself, um, that's not my job. And if I, if I spend all day doing that, it's, uh, it's not a high leverage use of my time. I should be over here doing this because if you, if you think about your time in terms of money, which, which it is in terms of what the company pays you, what's the highest and best leverage, you know, that you can get from each hour. And, and if I'm spending six hours a week rewriting copy, it's not that. And, and but that one I, I still struggle with because there's a part of me that wants to, that wants to do everything, do it all, stay up till 2am every night and just do it. But you, you burn out of jobs really quickly that way. And you're not actually doing your employer a favor is how I've had to re- reorient myself. It's like, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna he-man it, she-ra it, whatever, um, and, and kind of do it myself. It just doesn't scale. And, and, and you'll end up quitting that job a year earlier than you would have if you do things that way. Yeah, I completely agree. I think leverage as a leader, like that's, that's part of what leadership is, is right, is you can either spend a lot of time with one person or you, had, you, you have a team to manage and, you know, Letting everyone kind of own their own domain and sort of guiding them through that and supporting them uh, how they see fit is definitely the best approach. I think the best gift you can give people isn't rewriting it. It's feedback. It's, yeah. it's, it's why wasn't this right? Why, here, here's, what, here's what I thought when I read it. Let's talk for 15 minutes. This is how I would have done it differently. And then great talent retains that and applies that in the future so you don't have to rewrite it. If you rewrite it, you're depriving them of the gift of that feedback. Yeah. And it tends to be like the perfectionist oriented people that struggle with this the most, right? It's like, if everything needs to be perfect at all times, it's like, if you give the feedback and you're at a a level that makes sense, it doesn't always nothing. It doesn't always need to be perfect in your eyes. And also perfect is subjective in a lot of ways, right? It it is. And that's one of the things I've had to come to terms with just is I try to ask myself before I give that feedback, is this a matter of personal preference or is this, or is this a fact? Is this objectively a fact? And in, in marketing, as a, a, any sort of creative domain, that's very hard to separate. Um, and, and so is this a style thing that we're, I would have written it this way and that's my style? Or is this, this is, would land better this way? Like, and that's just a fact. Um, and so that's a process you kind of have to go through with yourself, I think, before you give any feedback or make any edits. Yeah, that's a great point. It's somewhat something to keep in mind for every leader. Is, is it just your personal preference? Because, again, that's not scalable either. And it's, that doesn't necessarily mean you're right. Read my mind is a terrible management style. Yes, for sure. Uh, well, Allison, I, I, this was an amazing conversation. Uh, so many valuable insights for all of our audience. So I appreciate you coming on and taking the time. I really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you.